Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. As you can tell, this is probably not your traditional host today as um, Andre Rollenberg is uh, a little bit busy and he's been uh, going through some hectic times with work and so it's going to be me hosting this today and I'm pretty excited about it because we had a sensational weekend of tennis with um, a lot of great stories, four very different uh, champions and winners on both the WTA and the ATP side. And joining me today is my old faithful friend and co-host, uh, Owen. How are you doing today, Owen? I'm doing well. Thank you for that introduction. And I'm excited to be here too. As you said, there were a lot of great champions and a lot of good matches this past weekend. So excited to break it down. Yeah, perfect. I mean, so this was a real true weekend where I felt like, you know, we had so many great uh, stories and just series of matches for, you know, a week that's not uh, a Grand Slam or a Masters 1000, we definitely had, I think we finished it off with three really good uh, matches, particularly from Djokovic and Nadal, as well as the the final of Belgrade and the final of Barcelona with Tsitsipas obviously going on that big streak that he was on. And so I guess we can we can start from, from anywhere, but really let's let's start from uh, from Belgrade, actually, where uh, sure, yeah. you know, Novak Djokovic was obviously the main story well, number one, you know, playing in his hometown. It was a 250 event. Um, it was it was at the Novak Tennis Center named after him where, you know, his parents and his brother was a tournament director. And certainly, you know, he didn't play as well as he would have liked at Monte Carlo. But here as the number one seed with Berrettini, the number two seed, um, he found himself playing two good matches. And then we had a semifinal with Aslan Karatsev, who's obviously been a major story breakthrough uh, player since the beginning of the year, really, with his semifinals of U.S. Australian Open, and then he won Dubai a title there, and he's really picked it up uh, from the from the Challenger Tour. And out of nowhere, he's come and you know really cemented his place in the top thirty, I guess. But uh, for him to beat Novak Djokovic in this match, I mean, in three hours and twenty five minutes, it was it was such an epic where he saved twenty three breakpoint chances, and yeah, just so much from it. What, what were your overall takeaways, I guess, and impressions? I couldn't watch this match, but I was following the live score, and I saw on Twitter everyone talking about the break points, and I just couldn't believe it that uh, Djokovic was missing so many, honestly, because he hardly ever does this. There was a stat that I think I brought up to Andre last time, that this was the most break points Djokovic had ever had in a single match. And the crazy thing is he didn't even win. Um, Karatsev saves 23 of 28 showed amazing uh, physical and mental resilience. Like you said, this match was right around three and a half hours, which is crazy. And if you're playing Djokovic, he's going to run you around, um, make it really physical. And to Karatsev's like, everlasting credit, he did a great job on the return. Did a good job pushing Djokovic around, who had to work incredibly hard for the one set he did win. I think uh, we've all seen the three points he played at the end of the second set to win it. And if you hadn't, you should go. If you haven't, you should go check them out right now because they're amazing. Two sliding passing shots, and then a defensive, a great defensive point that he finished with a blazing forehand winner down the line. And after I saw the highlights of those points on Twitter while the match was happening, I expected Djokovic to win the third. 6-2 or 6-3, but Karatsev hung in. He saved a ton of break points, including in the last game, and I think he really wore Djokovic down. After 3-all, Karatsev saved several break points, and then he went on a bit of a run, and Djokovic came back to get to 15-40 in the last game, but I do think he had a bit of a physical dip in the period before that. So, yeah, really, really spectacular win for Karatsev, and uh, no one can deny that he can play on clay now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what were your thoughts on it? Absolutely. I mean, great takeaways. Um, you know, my thoughts were that, you know, he, he comes out and he wins that first set 7-5, uh, and then 
uh, you know, he stretches that lead and he's, it really looks like he's playing really good first strike tennis on the clay and he's taking the ball super early off both wings. He has these compact ground strokes. He really, you know, tugs the baseline and, you know, really, really looks to attack. I think he might have the best swing volley right now on the tour, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he used that shot to such great effect. He came up with such big serves on these uh, on these break points. I think um, in the third set, Djokovic was 0 for 10 on break points and he was really managing to push um, push Djokovic like behind the baseline with his weight of shot and just Novak struggled to hit through the court. He showed great fight and showed great intensity and, you know, mm-hmm. showed, you know, obviously the passion that we know from him and he was, you know, the whole crowd was, was with him and he was, and it really looked, and you're right, like the, the last four games that he played to finish off that second set, you know, he was two, four down and he won those four games in a row. And those three spectacular winners that he hit in that 5-4 game, he really felt like he had lifted his energy and his spirits and he was probably going to win um, win the third set, you know, decisively. But that's the thing about um, Karatsev this year is it just, just seems like nothing is phasing him, that he has nothing to lose against these top players. And he's he comes out and beautifully resets, sticks to his game plan, does what he know, knows well, which is take the ball extremely early um, and really also defend extremely well because every time every time Novak had a midcourt ball and was going for for his um was finding was trying to find unique ways to finish the points whether it be through drop shots or whether it be through uh you know sustained consistency and depth uh, Karatsev was taking taking the ball out of his hands and just um you know either redirecting and absorbing the pace but also just cre- creating these massive angles and you know Pushing pushing Novak Djokovic and just making him play defense, which we know he can play really well. But I think in order for Djokovic to get to that next level where he wants to be, is he needs to, you know, in this case, this level would have been good enough, I think, against 90 percent of the players on tour. But it's yes. but it's just that I'm uh, I'm seeing that, for example, one stat that really jumped out to me was Karatsev had thirty two winners on his forehand side, which is. Just on just his forehand, on his forehand wow. which that's, is that's a massive tally. Exactly, yeah. and and Djokovic on his hand had nine on had nine winners on the forehand. So that yeah. right there and should tell you something. Yeah, th- that's a spectacular set to point out, and I think that really highlights Djokovic's struggles on clay. You mentioned that he's having trouble hitting through the court, and I think that's exactly right. On even though I didn't see the match, on even the points where Djokovic hit the spectacular passing shots at the end of the second set, I was struck by just almost how easily Karatsev was like pushing him around the court. And Djokovic found these amazing winners, but those aren't going to be the norm. He can find those on a point or two, and he did it on back-to-back points, strung them together, which is incredible. But on clay, you never want to be the one who's getting pushed around. And usually Djokovic is able to redirect pace to the extent that even if he's playing a bigger hitter than him, he'll make them do their fair share of running around. And my impression is that he didn't really do much of that here. His best mm-hmm. clay season outside Roland Garros, uh, was 2011, and that was probably his best forehand year. He used that shot to great effect on the clay that year. He could hit winners from anywhere. He was doing a lot of great things with it, and now it just feels like that forehand has lost some penetration, and it doesn't doesn't fly through the court well. He's resorting to the drop shot a little bit more, and so something that I think he should do is just go for more on that forehand, because I think losing a point like there are going to be many instances where losing a point with like a wild unforced error on the forehand could be preferable to being pushed around or being engaged in a long rally that don't seem to favor him on clay much anymore that eventually ends with uh, the opponent hitting a winner or Djokovic making a tired miss. So I really think he needs to go for more on his forehand because we've seen on the hard courts, it's still a great shot. He, he hits his uh, surf plus one very well with it. It can be a massive weapon, but it just doesn't seem to be doing as much damage on clay. And we know clay is a slower surface, it's harder to hit through, but it's also almost like he isn't going for as much with it on clay, which seems a little bit bizarre to me. Yeah, all great points. I mean, he also doesn't get as much out of his serve because, you know, to win, yeah. you know, to hit two aces and six double faults and go, uh, according to the stats, he won 48% on his second serve points one, which, you know, tells you that his serve is getting nullified and also Karatsev is such a great returner that he's able to take that ball so early. Absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. And and I think that 
the serve on clay may be holding Djokovic back even more than the forehand in terms of the difference between hard courts and clay. Um, I'm not sure if you have the stats in front of you, but do you know how many, uh, what his percentage of first serve points won was? Yeah, I do actually. So he's won, he won 61% of his uh, first serve points to Karatsev 64%. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so even that 61 strikes me as very low. Djokovic's serve has been uh, very—it's been so much improved, uh, almost unbelievably. So at the Australian Open, he hit over 100 aces, and, and which is a staggering number. In the final, he hit only three, but his serve plus one was devastating in that final. And I feel like it's almost similar with the forehand. Like, it's inevitably going to do less damage on the clay, but I feel like he's al- he's almost going for less with it. I think if he aims for the corners, he can still get plenty of aces. And if he misses, he is one of the best second serves in the game. It's hard to attack. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, like, tr- tr- trust that second serve. Hit his first serve big and try to get more out of it, because I think what he did against Karatsev isn't going to work. We saw his serve was practically ineffectual against Nadal at the French Open final last year, which was a massive match, and a match that he's probably going to have to play again if he wants to win the French Open for a second time. So if, if I were him, I... I think he just has to go for more on the serve and the forehand because he doesn't seem to be willing to engage in these long rallies as much in this stage of his career on the clay, that is. Yeah, um, you know, gr- great takeaways. And I'm glad you brought up the French Open final because that, that was certainly a key element in the, of that match where, you know, you could really point to the winner and really why they won. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so you look at, I, I'm also looking at something else, which is in the second set, you know, his first serve points one was a lot better. It was uh, 10 for 13. Okay, yeah. And so he was winning about 77% of his first serve points. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, you look at those four games that he won in a row. I mean, that's the kind of aggression and first strike tennis that he'd be looking to play. And even if it's not first strike tennis, he's hanging in there, but he's kind of going from defense to offense. But he's going for more off, you know, sitters and balls off the forehand and and really trying to use that as to get him going so that he can so that he cannot resort back to, you know, redirecting and absorbing and playing passively. So I think... Yeah, and um, and, and 10 for 13, If I think if he only made 13 first serves in that set, his first serve percentage would have been pretty low in yeah, that set. But I think, like, 54%. Yeah, but, so. but I, I think that's okay. I yeah. think he needs to go for more on the first serve, because 10 for 13 is much, much better than 61%. That'd be over 70, I think. Yeah. And and so I think he's capable of finding a balance that's maybe not as extreme as that, where he, he'll miss some more first serves. Maybe he won't serve in like the high 60s, but he can maybe serve in the low 60s or the high 50s and win a higher percentage of points on his first serve. I think that would benefit him more than what he's doing now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's indicated by the fact that he had four double faults. He was definitely going for more on his, mm-hmm. uh, on his serves, but it seemed to pay dividends for him, at least in those... Uh, and, and that's it. And it just seemed like in the third set, you know, because Karatsev is such a was uh, hanging in there physically with him, and he was having to do so much running. I think he was just exhausted by the time he was getting to his own service games. He was having to yeah. play work a lot more harder than Karatsev was. He was having to just expend a ton of energy. And he said after the match, you know, I felt dizzy. I felt a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, not myself physically. And I think that's because of all the running that he was made to do. And and that's yeah, where I think, I you know, Karatsev deserves so much credit because against the greatest returner of all time to come up with those shots under that insane amount of pressure to come up with so many good angles and insane volleys and, you know, times where he even had to do it off of second serves because he was missing the first serve. And, you know, yeah. you know, it's one thing to save four or five break points, but, you know, to save 10 in the, in a third set like that, yeah. it's, it's incredible really. Yeah, I, I want to add a couple of things. I think um like what you said is a great point about Djokovic wearing down physically. Gil Gross made a really phenomenal point on Twitter where he said he thought Karatsev serving first out of the changeovers was really impacting the balance of the match because Djokovic would throw himself into these return games. He'd get to break point and he wouldn't be able to break. And this would be taxing. And then he would have to hold his own service game like at three all in the third. I know he faced he had at least a couple of break points. Um, he may have had more and then he didn't break and then he, and then he had to serve or sorry, this would have been at a three, two up, I think. Yeah. Three, two, because at three, um, he yeah. was, he was broken at love. That's, he, he was yeah, broken. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that had a lot to do with what happened in the previous game. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, all the credit in the world goes to Karatsev for hanging in, in those games, wearing Djokovic down physically, which is very hard to do. He's one of the most fit players ever. And, 
and also to speak to um oh, i'm sorry what was um what was the other thing you said after after Djokovic wearing down i feel like you said something else after that oh i just said it was it was super impressive that karatsev was able to was able to actually close him out in the end and finish it off and uh yeah get, definitely yeah, get the job done because not easy to do that especially with that amount of pressure and it just he looks so unfazed it's it's amazing like he you know he wins that match and then he's asked in the interview about it and he's just kind of like it's just another ordinary day you know another ordinary it, just no celebration nothing really exactly and i'm so glad you brought that up after the match he was asked uh, what were you thinking on the break points and he was like nothing i had no time to think yeah. and in interviews he gives these very unspectacular answers even though he's doing spectacular things on the court and i think that in his mind they're they're ordinary they're run of the mill he's he's living up to his potential but he's not doing anything wild and i think that's even if it's not like eye popping in the answers he gives it's um it's incredibly helpful to him on court because mm. I think he always thought he was capable of this, which if you consider like Djokovic, you know, and a three and a half hour match, I think he would be forgiven for thinking that he wasn't capable of this. Yeah. And um so it's just really, really impressive. He's got a great mentality. Yeah. And on Djokovic on the break points really quickly, I was I remembered what I was gonna say before. I was reminded a little bit of his 2018 Paris match with Federer, where he had 12 break points in the match, didn't convert any of them. And so I was reminded of that just in terms of the break points. And in Paris, he found a way to win anyway. But I think I think here, here he couldn't. And something I just thought of was that he couldn't force a tiebreak. Mm. And I think um, like he couldn't hang on to his own serve. And, uh, and again, that speaks to the amazing returning that we were talking about earlier. Uh, from Karatsev and some of the things that Djokovic could fix on his own serve, because I think if he had gotten to a tiebreak, the margins probably would have favored him. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, I was backing him, you know, if it went to a tiebreak. And, and certainly I was expecting him to take one of those chances. But that's, uh, you know, that's, yeah, the, that's the way sport goes sometimes. And I think, you know, for for Aslan, you know, it's for him to say that, like, just, you know, you say, you mentioned like run of the mill. I think it's it also speaks to that um you know we always hear players say like I I stayed in the moment I went point by point I you mm-hmm. know I tried to just focus on the now and the present and we kind of just you know roll our eyes maybe or some some people think like that can't be you know that's insane but it, exactly but, yeah. but I think here you know he actually he actually did that to great effect he just he it never got to him he never panicked it's you know and and for him this is all this is all really just you know, a combination of eight to 10 years on the challenger tour where he spent grinding and, you know, futures and going back to the lower ranks. But then it seems like something just clicked ever since last year, since August, he's now just, he's backing it up consistently week after week. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's just so impressive. I've never seen a player, you know, or somebody in their mid twenties go from, you know, 253 to just completely unknown, completely not in unknown by the standards of the main tour, obviously, but then, and then back it up on, at a, at a slam level and at a 500 and a 250 do it on clay and hard courts it's and he's got now so many big wins to his name already this year top 10 players yeah yeah and you verbalized exactly what i was thinking there when people give answers like oh i wasn't thinking i really tend not to believe them because i'll think like how are you not thinking it's a big tennis match against a really great player and it's a really pressured situation but his tennis sort of forced me to believe that what he was saying was actually true mm-hmm. because he didn't just save a few break points he saved 23 break points and so he he was doing something right and he knows it yeah and by the way that's and, the most number of break points djokovic has ever produced in a tennis match and he's played 1140 yeah, exactly. matches in it career so yeah i was um i was thinking back to the 2011 u.s open final when he was in so many of nadal's service games and uh he had 26 in that match but he converted 11 of them right and uh and here he had two extra but he only converted five so that's that's a difference you know yeah that's it and and j- yeah. just quickly you know uh, on the final i think this was clashing with the barcelona match so it was really hard to watch both but i right. but i definitely think uh you know Matteo Berrettini showed us something because, you know, here we are in 2019 and we're thinking he's got to the ATP finals. He's number eight in the world. But I think he was a little bit the forgotten man of tennis for the last one year because, you know, obviously he had mm-hmm. many injuries in, in 2020 and he just his season never really quite got going. But what really struck me is just how how he's able to hit through the clay. You know, he's got this really big forehand. He's got a big serve that he can set up. And we all know the weakness is the two-handed backhand for him. But he's 
what he's done so well is he can slice and he can really set up and run around and hit those forehands massively. And also he's been, he's definitely talked about working on his backhand. And for him in the, in this match, I mean, when he won that first set, he was, they were having some good backhand to backhand rallies and Berrettini was more than holding his own in those. And, you know, obviously there was an element of fatigue in there because Karatsev obviously coming back and bouncing off this win physically, emotionally, mentally is so tough, you know, right off the bat. And, you know, Berrettini was was pretty impressive all week, I must say. And then to get through the third set tiebreak the way he did 7-0 at the end, you know, yeah. when Karatsev was coming back at him, I think it's it speaks to also, when I think about Berrettini, I don't think he has a very weak surface. I think he's quite good on all three. And he's he's won titles now on grass, hard courts, and, and clay. So I think, you know, he's another name we have to circle to, you know, potentially, you know, make a deep run or hold a seating at the at, at the French Open. Yeah, I, I think all of that is right. I I wasn't able to watch uh, the match, but but I agree that it was really impressive. And I think while Karatsev's fatigue may have, if if he hadn't been fatigued, we may well have gotten a different match than the one we got. I don't think yeah. fatigue was the decisive factor in the match that we did get, because he got all the way to a third set tiebreak and uh, and Berrettini whitewashed him, which is incredibly impressive. Uh, fatigue was not, uh, to be sure, the deciding role in that. And so, so very impressive mentally, I think, because Karatsev's semi against Djokovic, you could argue, is easily the match of the tournament, and gave him enormous momentum, even if it did tire him out a bit, and uh, Berrettini didn't care, and just rolled over him in the last few points. Mm. And I agree about his surface versatility. I think Clay might be his weakest surface, just because he can't make use of the slice as much. Serve and forehand are going to do a bit less damage. Mm. So because of that, I think it's really encouraging for him that he won this 250. I think you should definitely look to make make a good run at the French Open. And uh, after that, he's got Wimbledon coming up, where in 2019, he made the fourth round. Mm-hmm. I think before Wimbledon, he was like 12-1 and one on grass that season. Right. And so even though Federer uh, completely crushed him in that fourth round, he's got a better run of results on grass than most of the next gens. Yeah. So that's somewhere he can look to make it down as well. Um, and I agree with you about him being a little bit the forgotten man because he made that U.S. Open semifinal in 2019. Right. But then he didn't do much at the World's Tour finals, and I don't really think he had many results of note in 2020 either. Yeah. And he's reminding us that he's still here uh, fighting for good results. So it was good to see. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he had some good results this year at the ATP Cup. He beat Dominic Team. He beat, you know, Montes. Right. And then I think at the... Australian Open, he started to make some noise. He beat Hachinov in straight sets, and Hachinov was playing pretty well, and he beat him in three tie breaks. And then we were supposed to get the fourth round with Stefano Tsitsipas, but I think he pulled out because of an of an ab injury. And so this was his first tournament since then. And so I think uh, for him to come out and win it, he was quite surprised, and he was chuffed at the end when he when he won and he held up that trophy. He seemed he, he seemed quite surprised. He didn't expect to go this far, but you, you know yeah. I think he beat some good players here. He beat like you know Krajinovic, and he beat. I'm forgetting who else he beat. Um, yeah, some 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 good players he beat. Uh, obviously, Kratsev in the final, but he had. Uh, mm-hmm. he, I think he beat Marco Cecchinato. That was in the in the quarters, and he beat, he beat them all pretty comfortably. I think he lost one set in the semis to Taro Daniel, but then he bageled him in the third set. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and I had forgotten about the Australian Open. Actually, thank you for reminding me of that. Because fourth round run is impressive, beating Hachinov in straight sets is impressive, especially in three tie breaks. Yeah. I think we would have gotten a good match with Tsitsipas because his serve is very good. Tsitsipas, I think, would have had trouble on the return. So while he may not have went won, I think, um, I think he definitely would have put up a good fight. I think it wouldn't have been shocking if he had won that. Yeah. So it's good that he has that result under his belt as well. Yeah. And uh, and not a whole lot of um. Wait, so. Sorry, if I think about, it, has he lost a match this year? Technically, then, um, he's he actually lost uh, to. He probably lost one at the ATP Cup. He lost the the, the final at the ATP Cup because Italy was in the final, and he, he lost to Daniel Medvedev there. And uh, I do right, want right. to go back and make a correction because actually he did play in Monte Carlo. Um, now that I think, uh, now that okay, I realize, right. and he lost to Davidovich Fokina there, but that was his first match back. So I think. Okay. Yeah. So, so that might be a bit of a one-off. So. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm going to stick with the narrative that Matteo Berrettini is un- the undefeated goat in uh, 2021. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But um, but yeah, I think it definitely helps him that yeah. it could help his confidence that he hasn't really had many losses this year. Yeah. And he does have quite a few wins. Tournament wins are always confidence boosters. So yeah, I'll be excited to see what he does for the rest of the season. Yeah, obviously. And then you know you look at you look at Barcelona and you thought. You know, that was nothing would probably top off that Karatsev Djokovic match in terms of, 
you know, sheer quality. But then you get to Barcelona right. and you have two men who are just, I mean, what a battle that was. And, and, and I think you guys previewed it, you know, quite well in your, in your preview podcast, all the X's and O's. And I think, you know, we're all aware by now of King Rafa and Clay and what, what are the things he does well. And obviously we're aware yeah. of Sitsipas' streak and, you know, the 17 sets that he had in a row. And I think he really came into this match with a, with an inner self, sense of self-belief that I think was quite justified. And he, he, he felt like he had a really good chance here. And I think he took advantage of that chance, um, you know, uh, in the beginning, in the first set, he started out very strongly and, you know, he won those, he was up a break. And I think then we, we started to really see what makes Rafa so tough when he stole that first set from him. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it has to be said that the first set was a steal because Tsitsipas, he broke it one all. I think he won, he may have won eight points in a row because that was a break to love. And then I think he consolidated to love as well. And then at 3-1, he had break point twice to go up 4-1 double break. At 4-all, when Nadal got back on serve, he'd break point three times to serve for the set, but he didn't convert them. Nadal played some clutch tennis, definitely, but you could argue that Tsitsipas should have been a bit more proactive. And then when he was serving at four or five, having missed all those chances, I think a lot of people could just see the break coming, and he played quite a poor service game mm-hmm. but and got broken. But uh, he definitely got even in the second set because he saved championship point twice with winners. <laughs> uh, and you had an overhead and a nice drop volley at a four or five in the second and then got it to a tie break. And uh, I'll, I'll let you talk about this some, because I don't want to talk about all the best parts of the match. You should be able to <laughs> talk about some as well. So uh, uh, pick up with the tie break. No, 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 definitely. I think you uh, you you mentioned those two, three championship points. I think that's what, what really struck me. It was, a, it was two of them, right? He had the two, yeah. The two and Held then, from 1540. Yeah, and, and then three of the next four from 1540 were winners. But I think... yes. Uh, yeah, so I think I, I think that was a crucial point in the match, especially also because Rafa, you know, knowing what happened to him at the Australian Open when he was two sets to love up, um, you know, he definitely did not want to give Tsitsipas any more confidence, and and he was mm-hmm. definitely looking to finish that match in um, in in straights, and also, um, you know, that pattern that worked for him in that in in, in that first set where he was continually. Um, attacking Sitsipas's backhand, but there's a few ways that Nadal can go about it because um, I think what really struck me in this match is just that Sitsipas's backhand, although he doesn't have a slice and although he hits most of a drive, I think it really works on the clay in these cross court patterns. He's, in the sense, he's able to hold his own for a few reasons. One, I think mm-hmm. he's a little bit taller. You know, he's six foot four, so I think the ball doesn't get quite as high on him, and I think he's able to protect that wing and cover that wing really well by staying in that corner and also he's able to defend really well off the forehand and it's it's explosive defense that he can then uh you know convert to offense and he can hit you know forehand cross court and he can cover that running forehand beautifully and he can get right back into the point and then start looking to dictate with their forehand obviously both players looking to do damage with their forehand but also um you know Nadal with his patterns where he goes where he goes heavy and hard cross court I think at times he also had to adjust Rafa because I think um, at times he was taking off a little bit of height and trying to go more pace. But then when he realized mm-hmm. that Tsitsipas was able to hold his own, I think he then started to change out, change it up and then use his variety and go a little bit more loopy. And then maybe it doesn't exactly mean that Tsitsipas is going to be uncomfortable, but he's going to give him a slightly shorter ball, which he can then use to go with a really strong inside-out forehand. And then, yeah. and then that's when he's in control of the point. So I think it was just really interesting to see these dynamics. But in that second set, you know, he had 4-2 in that tie break. And and so you're thinking, and I think they had one they had one good point like that where he, where they had some uh, cross-court exchanges. And then I think uh, Rafa had a ball that he could have been more proactive on and gone inside out on earlier. Yeah, he, he had he a reasonably it. short forehand that he could have belted or followed into net. And I don't think he did enough with it. Yeah. And then I think he, he lost the next few points and it became 6-4 for Sitsipas. Yes. Um, that time break, and then he, and then I think another option that Sitsipas uh, can deploy, which has mixed success, but I think it, it's another option that he's got is that he can look to look to either um, because when he when he also has a short ball from Rafa in that uh, backhand corner, he can either run around mm-hmm. it and hit a strong forehand, either inside in, or he can look to keep the backhand cross court rally going, but also try to hit a sharp angle off the backhand. But instead, 
he takes mm-hmm. that grip and he goes for a drop shot. And then what I noticed he was doing yeah. well is he was hitting that drop shot and then he was kind of trying to anticipate what Rafa would do when he got up to the net. So he would try to mm-hmm. come up and, you know, try to play some cat and mouse with him at the net. It worked once, but then I think at the 4-6 point he tried it and then uh, then Rafa hit that really good stab volley, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I, I actually think Tsitsipas hit quite a good drop shot there. I wasn't sure Rafa would get to it. Yeah. but And he had to work quite hard with the stab volley. It was your uh, your typical drop shot pattern where Tsitsipas tried to dink cross court for a winner. But Nadal uh, reached out that massive left arm and uh, just got enough on it. That was one of the points of the match, I think. Yeah, that was, that was a great point. And then obviously, then Rafa uh, double faulted at 6-all and we saw a little bit yep. of nerves from him. And and then Tsitsipas was able to close that, that second set and... From then we thought, wow, this could be anybody's match. But yeah, but certainly, um, yeah, yeah, certainly it was it was quite a, it got quite dramatic in that in that tiebreak, especially because uh, I pointed out also on Twitter that Nadal has now lost his last nine tiebreaks against top ten players, and I think that goes all yes, the way back has. to the end of 2019 uh, when he beat Medvedev in that really funky match at the World Tour Finals. Right. And that third set tiebreak since then, he's not been able to win one against a top 10 player. And so I think it's getting harder yeah. for him to close out these matches against the best players in, in straight sets. So he has to dig in and find something and dig extra deep. And we, we saw how much it means to him, you know, when he wins that trophy and he wins it for the 12th time, even though it's just a just another ATP 500, it's really not. You see how much he yeah. has to work and fight and grind against somebody who is, you know, the the, the best clay court player right now this season. So... Yeah. So, you know, all these things going through his mind when he loses that second set, but then in the third set, I mean, you know, I thought most I thought um Sitsipas wasn't getting much many chances on the return early. No, he wasn't, not until four or five. Yeah. And then and then, you know, definitely then they had that then obviously Sitsipas had that match point that everyone's talking about and um, yeah. you know, he set up the point nicely. Uh Rafa missed his first serve. And then Tsitsipas goes goes brilliantly and hits an inside in forehand return, and then yeah. you know Tsitsipas is looking for a ball that he can attack with, but he knows how dangerous it is to go inside out. So he keeps that rally and he keeps probing Nadal's backhand, and Nadal yeah. gets some good. Nadal looks like he's about to hit one short, and I think it hits the net court and it goes over, and the rally just kind of resets, and then yeah, he, I think he got some good depth on his next backhand after that. Yeah, and then and then but, eventually yeah, that, missed, that net missed a backhand in the net, but it was he was very close because if, yeah, yeah, that that you're right, that net court totally reset the rally. Nadal, I think, actually forced the error with a pretty good inside in forehand uh, at the end of that point, right. but that. That 4-5 game was completely wild as a whole because we had the point of the match at 15-all where uh, right. Tsitsipas pushed Nadal way out wide with a cross-court backhand and Nadal hit one of his running forehand down the lines. Tsitsipas hits a forehand to the open court. Uh, Nadal on the run hits a backhand to the baseline and it just went on and on until eventually Tsitsipas uh, shanks the ball. And then Nadal lost the next point and at 30-all... He set up the point well, and he got a short forehand right. down the line. And he the I think he might he he was like right on the service line, and he dumped it into the net. And so after that, when he missed his first serve at thirty forty, it really looks like it might be over. But when but he got out of that game, and um, and you could see how much he wanted to avoid another tiebreak at five all, because he they threw everything at each other that game. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Tsitsipas was saving break points with good one-two punches. He was coming to net on break points. And I think eventually on the fourth break point, Nadal got 
a deeper return in and Tsitsipas hit a forehand wide. Yeah. And uh, and I'll let you cover the last game because that was the last bit of uh, madness before the three hours and thirty eight minute match ended. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a blur for me. So you can you can uh, you can chime in, but I think uh, you know sure, he yeah. was he was up thirty love if I recall correctly in that last yes. game, and then and then I think it 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 got tight at thirty all and uh, Sitsipas yeah, had you, a you had point. a double fault at thirty fifteen and then a missed volley at thirty all. Yeah, yeah, missed volley at the right. There was that missed volley where he was jammed. I remember. Yep. And uh and yeah, I mean it was a it was a not a phenomenal pass, I'd say, by Sitsipas, but he he, yeah. he he was smart. He went right in the body and I think Rafa was caught off guard a little bit and just jammed and missed the forehand volley in the net. But uh yeah. on the next point he, he saves it. Uh I, f- I forget how he do you remember how he saved the the break point? I, I think it was. I don't remember how he saved the break point. I remember the two. I remember that, the, the deuce point after, which was an, another crazy point. Where yeah. both players were just pushing each other corner to corner to corner, and eventually Sitsipas's forehand defense was—I mean, Nadal had to win that point like three or four times, and then eventually he finished he did, with, yeah. a, with an open, open touch squash shot on the forehand, just uh, in the corner. Yeah, so was, yeah, just like a little chip cross court uh, at the net. Yeah, and then he did one of his trademark celebrations, and yeah, he was uh, he was amped after that to say the least, and then yeah. and then match point he. He served out wide, hit a forehand down the line. It wasn't a great forehand down the line. It was kind of central. Yeah. I think I don't think it was an unforced error from Tsitsipas, but mm-hmm. I think it's a shot you'd expect him to make most of the time. But yeah. hit a forehand well long, and uh, and that was it. Yeah, and then just just absolute uh, absolute relief, but also just an emotional outpouring from Nadal. He fell to the floor, and then you know obviously Tsitsipas. Very, very dejected at the end, but what an effort he put yeah. and what a phenomenal two weeks he's had. And I think now the goal for him needs to be to, he, he cannot let this, you know, stop him from achieving more in Madrid and Rome. And yes, he, he has to keep that momentum, exactly. keep that positive energy that he has. And he's done a lot better as of late of, you know, resetting after tough losses and tough weeks and bouncing back. And that's why he's been number one in the race. And that's why he's, what, I think he's held that role of Dominic team quite well. <laughs> yeah as, as one yeah, the, of the favorites the clay court prince for the season yeah so and and you can see how much nadal had to work and he wasn't at his best you know during this match i'd say he was at a b level mm-hmm. you know maybe yeah i think that's fair and still he found a way so i think it's quite amazing you know that he he's really on track now because you look at his first round yeah. that he played against Ilya Ivashka, he lost that first set really terrible set by his standards and yes. you know forehand was not working i mean serve was he was still having issues backhand he was struggling with so really you know it's his grit and his intensity that gets him through these these matches and also his aura of playing on king rafa nadal playing on pista right. rafa nadal court it's just insane that the court is named after him and you know yeah. you have to see a statue of him before you walk on and he's got this illustrious resume but um yeah i mean just now he's going to be looking at Madrid and Rome, and you know, priming for the for the French. And I think, it, absolutely, he has to be the number one favorite. There's no question in my mind. That, of course, that he's already ahead of where he was at in 2019. I think you know exactly. Yeah, and, and I think not enough people are talking about that. In 2019, he lost at Barcelona on straight sets to team, and this year he won the tournament. So he's ahead of track. If we look at the um, two years ago, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I agree with you. I think where Tsitsipas stands to lose from this match is if he lets it get him too down mentally. He he played well enough to win. He should have won the first set. He did win the second set, and he had a championship point in the third set. So if he doesn't let this hit him too hard mentally, and he keeps playing the tennis that he's playing, more good results will follow. He'll get to play Rafa again, and he's already. I think he's already had a better clay season than he has than he had last year. Yeah, I mean, like French Open semi last year, but I think if he keeps up this level, he'll at least get to the quarters, um, and and he may get farther than that. So, yeah, yeah, he just needs to keep doing what he's doing. Absolutely, I think the main question I just have for him is how much better can he get from this? Because I think this was a quite a high level, and if he it, it was, yeah, you know, it's going to be because Nadal's definitely going to get better. So if <laughs> it, exactly, yeah, and um, and this is why he is not the favorite for the French Open because you saw this match. We saw, I think we saw close to a one hundred percent CT pass for a lot of that first set. Right. If we if you take out select big points, I think he was playing pretty much as well as he could for a big part of that, and uh, managed to get the second had had that match point in the third. And 
and as we know, this was not the best Rafa we've seen. So we know that he'll probably go up a couple of gears. And I'm not sure that Tsitsipas can. And that is why mm-hmm. he's not the favorite for the French Open. He's, um, he's probably the third or the fourth, depending on how well team comes back. But right. that said, Tsitsipas has improved a lot. I think he's going to keep improving. He's still just 22. Nadal is not going to improve year to year, I don't think. Yeah. He's he's on the way out. And if we look at his whole career, still dominating at Roland Garros, but in I don't know, two, three, four years, it's hard to imagine that CC Poss won't have a bigger physical advantage. So Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I th- I think I think it's important to keep in mind that it's gonna be a long road for him mm-hmm. to that French open title. It will probably be a long road, but he's he's moving quickly on it. Yep, he's moving quickly and he has tremendous self belief and and you and you see that, you know, when he plays these big guys he's not intimidated by them and he knows he he has the game to to trouble them and hurt them and so mm-hmm. i think he, he you know he'll look at this and he's only 22 right now and i think he'll he'll take confidence and he'll be wanting to play nadal again because i think now their last five of their last six matches have gone to a deciding set and yeah you know they've all been enthralling and they, to think that these are the two guys who you know played an exhibition match one time that lasted over three and a half hours right they, yeah they both just wanted so badly and it's it, it's great for us because i think it's turning into a quite a really good rivalry actually uh, i agree yeah i think if their last several matches you can throw out the world's tour finals match they played last year i yeah. think that was a bit of a dud but besides that like they've had some really good close intense matches i i think tt Foss keeps improving which is good i think he beat nadal on clay at madrid in 2019 but i think this yeah. is probably a higher level match i think okay. um he had to do more in this match so even though he won then and he lost uh, this weekend, I think he's still making progress. And and it is great to see um, this rivalry continuing. Um, rivalries are good, good for tennis. They're fun to watch. There are stakes. So yeah, like more of this, please. Yeah, exactly. And also great to see David Ferrer as the tournament director, which was kind of yes, nice. Yes, absolutely. I hope he was responsible for the opera singing. <laughs> Yeah, many people were actually pointing that out that the trophy ceremony was quite was quite different than normal this year, and yeah, uh, yeah there was there was some good screenshots and photos and videos from that. But I guess if we move on, I mean, you know, we also had a phenomenal event. The WTA keeps on delivering every year, um, yes. every week, I should say, especially this season. And you know, once again, Ash Barty now, uh, you know, wins the Stuttgart title and defeating Arena Sabalenka three six six love six three in the final. And, uh, you know, I think it was a reminder for me also that, uh, you know, Sabalenka has become quite a consistent player and quite a threat every week and that, has, yeah. uh, and that she can play on clay as well. And, you know, something about Stuttgart is that this is a little bit of a different type of clay. This is indoors. And, you know, your winners from this event are generally players that, uh, you know, let's just say don't prefer outdoor clay as much, the movement at least. And so they're able to benefit mm-hmm. a little bit more from the lower balance and the and big serving and big hitting. And that's why you see a lot of big hitters do very well here. Like Kavito has won titles here and uh, in the past. And and uh, Pliskova has done well. So players like that. But I also think yeah. uh, this your more traditional clay court players, it also it also helps them because they're comfortable on they're comfortable moving and but I just think you know, it was it, my main takeaway from it was that Ash Barty is really cementing herself on all surfaces. That she that it's uh, she's becoming such a nightmare for every opponent to play because uh, there's another stat that came to me is that she's now won her last ten matches against top ten players. This is a streak that That's only that only Serena and Venus have more than her. Uh, I think uh, Justine Hennan has seventeen wins in a row, something like that, and Kim mm-hmm. Kleisters has eleven. That's it. Everybody else has not won more than ten in a row, and I think you know it just speaks to how many players how how good her game is that it can stand up against the best uh, on every surface. And I, and I honestly think even though she won the French open, I honestly don't feel comfortable in saying that's her best surface because I think she's yeah. now won titles indoors on grass. She's won titles on, uh, yeah, outdoors, hard, indoor, hard. She's won clay titles. This is her second clay title. So, and, and, and it, it feels to me that in that year that she was off, she definitely worked on her backhand because it's now a lot better, especially because, yeah. you know, you know, before she could throw in the, the backhand as more of a punch shot and uh, her two hander and, and mix it up, but it wasn't anywhere near as solid. I don't think as it is now. And she's using, she has options now. She can either use that or the slice before it was just a slice and kind of use that as a mix up. So I think now it's, mm-hmm. it, it's really affecting her. And she was able to tear Sabalenka uh, where physically Sabalenka down in that match 
um, in a way that I don't think, for example, Simona Halep was able to do. And Simona Halep, by the way, was impressive right. earlier in the week. But then, you know, Arena Sabalenka kind of took her apart the way Iga Sviantek did at the French Open. It was very similar, I thought. Yeah, that, that's a good comparison. And I think with the indoor clay, in what I saw of um, Sabalenka, Barty, and in the highlights, I, there was a lot of surf plus one. So that, that serve in first forehand mm-hmm. was doing a lot of damage. And Barty can hang with Sabalenka in that department in a way that Simona Halep can't. And Barty was making just great use of that huge serve in the big forehand. And you're right, it is really helpful to have that improved backhand. Now, I think it's still a weakness. It's still her weaker wing, clearly. But yeah. it does help to have that top spin as an option because uh, on clay, the slice can still help, but it sits up. And so your, your slices have to be better. It's a more dangerous option. Sabalenka has a great backhand. So I think this uh, the improvement in that wing definitely helped her. And... Uh, no one can argue that she doesn't deserve to be number one anymore mm-hmm. because she's now number one in the race yeah, uh, this year. Point. Yeah, so, and that makes two, um, I think three tournament wins, actually, if you include the Yara Valley Classic uh, that was yeah. before the Australian Open, but multiple tournament wins this year on multiple surfaces. Yeah, she's she's a threat to win majors this year and win many other tournaments as well. So it's just good to see her her cementing her status as um as the number one player at the top of the rankings a threat in these big tournaments because i think she's gotten a lot of undeserved criticism this year so yeah. so it's just good to see and nice new car for her as well <laughs> yeah the porsche not bad and she also yeah. won the doubles so i think it's right quite a week <laughs> yeah i think it's it, it just speaks to and i think she's she she has nothing to prove to anybody like you know she had the best year of anybody in 2019 she won mm-hmm. so many titles i think her overall record or something since 2019 is 77 and 17 that's just insane like she's winning it's incredible over 80 percent of her matches and she's she's doing it with this with this grace and this humility and, and this, she's just carrying herself really well and i you know i, I like that about her and she's she's not she she doesn't seem to care what other people think and she's she she has nothing to prove because you know, it's not like people act as if, you know, in 2020, she just, she just, she could have played, but she decided, nah, you know, it's, it's not for me. I'll take a break. I'll spend time at home. That's really not what it was. I think it really had a lot exactly. to do with her it's being in Australia. Concerns around COVID safety. Yeah. yeah. And so for her, I think a lot of it depends on, you know, keeping that motivation up and being away from home for so long. Now, uh, such a long stretch because she doesn't have her whole team with her. She has only her coach, Craig Tyser, mm-hmm. with her. And so I think it's going to be about keeping herself engaged and keeping herself moving in these in this bubble life because it's not easy to be so far away from home and amid COVID concerns traveling all over the country. And I, and I read somewhere that she's got her vaccine dose. So I think she's... Yes, which is spectacular to hear. Yeah, so I think she's going to be in, in good spirits and she's going to be a threat at every surface. And, and I completely agree. I think Wimbledon in 2019... Uh, she lost in the fourth round. I don't think she did herself complete justice there. So I think she'll be looking no, to improve I, I on agree. that. Yeah, I, I was out, I was going to mention that she lost to Allison Risk. I think yeah, in the fourth round. Yeah, and and Risk is a great player, but mm-hmm. Barty I think was the favorite going into that Wimbledon. She was uh, yeah. she was like the hot pick before that started. Yeah, and I think in the match against Risk, I think her first service game she may have served four aces. Four aces. It was yeah. either in that match or a different match in the tournament. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I think you put it very well when you say she didn't do herself complete justice. I think that she probably should have gotten further in that tournament. Yeah. And I think going forward, she'll be a threat at Wimbledon as well. She's a French Open champion, as we know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think look for her to do heavy heavy damage in this part of the year. Yeah, and I mean, what a serve she has for five foot five! Like it, it's it's really incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like any good serve is impressive, but she's not tall, so yeah. it's it's amazing that she can do this much damage for it. She's clearly perfected the toss and the motion to the extent that it can be a really, really damaging weapon, even at five foot five. Yeah, so it's very impressive to see. Absolutely, and my other takeaways from it is just that um, you know Sabalenka has been kind of touted as a as a big hitter and you know great for strike tennis, but I think she's also shown some good resolve and she's she's uh mm-hmm. she's had some some consistency now and she's using more she's thinking more on the court she has she's improved her 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 touch her ability to change change pace a little bit and she's no longer just hitting linear flat ball strikes i think she's she's tough for anybody now yeah i i think her drop shot was out in force this week as well yeah particularly against halep so she's far from just a big hitter and and yeah, even though she didn't get across the line 
in the final. I think definitely a lot of things to salvage from this tournament in the first set. She was down break point a few times, and she saved them and got through that. And obviously it didn't work out her way in the in the end, but I think to be able yeah. to win a set against Barty in that fashion is definitely something to hold on to going forward. So I expect good results from her in the future as well. Yeah. And while losing in a final always hurts, um, you had to play at a good level to get there. So impressive week from her as well. Yeah, completely agree. And I also want to give a, a shout out to a couple other players who, who did well uh, this week, yeah. which was Svitolina, number one. I think Svitolina has quietly been pretty consistent. Uh, the last few tournaments, she made the Miami semifinals as well, and she she put together a good result here this week. Also, I think she beat Petra Kvitova in a quarterfinal, if I'm not mistaken, from a set down, and Kvitova was five two up, and had a cha- had yeah. a, had a match point, and she just showed great resolve to come back in that match. And she's now following her shots into the net. She's using a little bit more more variety. She's thinking more. She's got great uh, feel also at the net. Her hands have improved. She's I don't want to say improve because I feel like she's had all these things before. It's just a matter of confidence and implementing them at the right, at the right time in the right headspace. And I think she's done that all, uh, you know, much better the last few weeks. And I think she's just in, in, in much better spirits. And I think she's getting engaged to Gail Monfils in July. That might have something to do with it. But I think, but I think uh, now she just needs to put together a good result in a major because she's done pretty much, she's done quite well at the tour level. And I think I, I think in this match against Ash Barty in the semis, she served for it uh, as well. She had six four five four serving for the match. Yeah, and she had four two up in the second set tiebreak as well. I think right. that that match in some ways paralleled. Um, I think she almost felt Kvitova's role in <laughs> her previous match. <laughs> kind of, N- yeah. not not quite to the extreme, but but yeah, she was she was not far away from winning that match against Barty. So so it's a shame for her that she wasn't able to do it, but. There are also positives that she got herself that close. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think she has all the tools, and it's just a matter of getting them in alignment for long enough to mm-hmm. win these tournaments, go deep at the majors. So, so yeah, a good week for her as well, I think. Yeah, and, and just to be clear, I also don't think her ceiling is as high as some of the other top players, but I think she no, has... No, I agree. I think she has a good level of consistency to put herself in those positions more uh, and make consecutive quarters and semis of of majors and I think if a draw opens up she can take advantage but I think um but I think something I think that's been a bit of a struggle for her as well because at the French Open she had um you know Podoroska who was a great story but she was totally expected to win that match in the quarters and you know then she would have she would have made another semi at the French but I think you know she if she puts herself in these positions over and over I think you know at, at one point she might produce a a big major result yeah, I agree. And it's just a matter of playing well enough for long enough to give herself that chance. Yeah, exactly. And then another player in that same category was Karolina Pliskova, who also uh, served for the match against Barty. That's why it's so impressive that Barty is coming through these matches, because she was down yeah, in the I mean, brink. Yeah, she's just doing it over and over. She was down against Karolina, too, and you know she lost that first set badly. I mean, Karolina was serving really well, playing great first-strike tennis. It was good to see her finally playing, playing well as... Uh, in the last few, uh, in the last few matches, because she hasn't had a great year at all, and so it was mm-hmm. good to see her, you know, beat like Ostapenko, get to the quarters, give herself a position. And I don't think she did too much wrong. She lost that match, but I think that was uh, that was credit Barty. I felt. Yeah, yeah, she served for it, but I think it wasn't as much of a choke as other no. examples of this happening. I think Barty played very well from the brink. Yeah. So yeah, I think. I think this is a good bad loss, if that makes any sense. It'll obviously yeah, hurt, I think but it was a good she. Yeah, she, she definitely didn't let herself down the way Kvitova did against Svitolina. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's there are a lot of good takeaways that she can have from this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then uh, you know another the, the last tournament that took place was in Istanbul, which I really didn't get to watch at all. But I think mm-hmm. um, yeah, I didn't either. But I think there was a good story from it, which is that the winner, uh, Sarana Kirstea, won her first title in over 13 years, and she's had some good results here and there, but. Uh, she she ended up beating Elise Mertens in the final, and I wasn't expecting that because the rule book on Mertens is always she beats the players you know ranked much lower than her, and yeah, she's and Mertens expected was to beat. the top seed in that tournament. Yeah, and so for her to win that final six one seven six, and Mertens I think yeah. was five two up in the second set. So yes, she was. So that that was quite a surprising result and a very well deserved win I think for uh, for Kirstea because she won the whole tournament without dropping a set, and there were some good players here. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that. 
I, I don't know what it means going forward because, you know, she didn't win a title for 13 years, but I know she's had some good results. Like she beat Kvitova at the Australian Open in the second round. She's got some, mm-hmm. some uh, I think, a Masters final in 2014 in Canada. Uh, and, you know, so, so she's had results like that here and there, but but uh, it just speaks to the depth of, of the women's game. And, you know, maybe Martins will have to examine that match and see what she could have done differently. Yeah, I, I think the first set in particular for her will be worrying. Um, the second set, I think she was a bit fortunate for it to be as close as it was. But yeah, I think it's a nice uh, feel-good story for uh, Cersea. She, um, I think she's one of the better backhands on tour, nice mm-hmm. down-the-line winner on match point. Yeah, And I think after going so long without a title on tour, 13 years on tour is a long time. Right. This must have felt very, very good for her. So it's mm-hmm. it's nice to see. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And it was also great to see Marta Kostuk playing better because she also made the semis and she's uh, she had that really good match against Osaka that I watched uh, in the third round of the French of the US Open where she really pushed her and won a set and then had break points and could have been up a break in the, in the third set. So good to see mm-hmm. her playing well, I thought. And yeah, it was a good story overall for that tournament. So I think, yeah, we, we pretty much covered all the all the main tournament storylines. Um, another yeah. another sad news was that Bianca Andreescu unfortunately tested positive and she won't be playing in Madrid and that's a bummer because I was really looking forward to seeing her play a proper clay clay swing this time around. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a shame to see her career has certainly had yeah. its fair share of obstacles. Hopefully, she makes a quick recovery. I think last we heard, she wasn't showing symptoms, which is a good sign. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, it's a shame because she would be such a joy to watch on clay. Hopefully, we still get to catch some of it. Yeah. And um and another recent piece of news is that uh Djokovic will not be playing mm-hmm. uh the Madrid Open, which is which is interesting, I thought. Yeah. I mean, um w- what were your thoughts on it before I uh say mine? Yeah, I would say I was surprised but not surprised because I think he was hinting at he was hinting at uh peaking for the majors for a while this year and he was also uh you know, the fact that he played Belgrade this week um after playing Monte Carlo the week before where he you know, he felt like he needed more matches and obviously we know the importance of what it means for him playing at home. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, and I know that Rome is one of his best tournaments. So, uh, and, and also we know that it's, it's, it's tougher to play back-to-back weeks and play these long matches. Now for him, he's almost 34, but so yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't completely shocked, but at the same time, I am a little, I was a little bit surprised that he's playing the second edition of Belgrade, which is a week yeah. after the Rome finishes and it's just the week before the French Open like just the week right before and I think uh, you know I pointed this out that not many top players play the week before before a major and you know they usually choose to take that time to rest and recover but I guess um, it could work either way because if it if he doesn't have the result he wants at Rome uh, and then he's you know he feels motivated at home with the closest people around him and he feels like that's a good springboard that he needs to prepare for the French Open then by all means, um, it makes sense for him because he's getting some matches in and instead of using that week to rest and recover, that might uh, get him primed and ready to go at the French Open. My only concern is that if those matches in the in that Belgrade 2 event go really long and like something similar to the Kratzev match, like three and a half hours, that kind of thing, yeah. in the semis and finals, he'll have a very short turnaround for the beginning stages of the French Open. So then it's just, will he have enough left in the tank when he gets to the semis and finals where he where he will be looking to win his second French Open. yeah, Right, and he'll also be playing the toughest competition at that point. It's hard to imagine that he won't run into a Tsitsipas team or Nadal, uh, yeah. particularly that last name. So he'll need all he's got for that. And something I just thought of, he won Madrid in 2019, so will he drop 500 points? Yeah, so he, he'll have to defend those 500 points um, uh, from Madrid. And I think he won Rome last year, so he should... He did, yeah. yeah so he, man, yeah. So yeah, so so interesting period for him coming up. Then could be the first mm-hmm. sign of him focusing more on the majors in action. Yeah. Because now that he has the weeks at number one record, might be prepared to um to let that ranking go a little bit, or n- at least not focus on it as much. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, he's done this before. Like played the week before. Um, he played in 2017, I believe. He played the week before Wimbledon. He won. He won the tournament at Stuttgart. He beat Gil Monfils in the final, and then he got to the quarters, if I'm not mistaken, at Wimbledon, and then he pulled out against Burdich yeah. with that elbow injury. And then, you know, at the ATP Cup this year, he could have potentially gone deeper, but his team lost earlier. So he had four or five days left to rec- recover the week before. Yeah. And then, obviously, we know about that example of Cincy and the U.S. Open with the 
with the default, but I also think he was quite tired at the beginning of the, the U.S. Open. He lost his set to Edmund, and he, you mm-hmm. know, wasn't in you know top peak physical shape, I guess, because he, he he couldn't have been because he had those you know long tussles with RBA and Roundich. So it, it's yeah. just interesting. It's something to something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I agree. And I agree with you about the US Open that Cincy title was it was well earned, but it was brutal physically. And yeah. and I don't think this has happened enough for it to really be a trend. I but it's so. interesting how in twenty seventeen he chose to play Eastbourne when his level was as bad as it's gotten for a long time at that point. And so I think yeah. I think he really needed confidence. And I don't want to uh again, I'm don't really think there's a trend here, yeah. but I do wonder if after that loss to Evans, he's maybe searching for the same thing here. Just extra matches, extra motivation at home, um, just trying as hard as he can to build that level and the confidence ahead of the French Open, which is probably, besides the Olympics, or maybe even including Olympics, uh, the tournament that would mean the most to him at this point in his career for his resume. Yeah, I totally agree. And then, obviously, we know he has a really big uh, season ahead with the Olympics and uh, even yeah. before that Wimbledon, obviously, where he's going to be the the favorite there. And, you know, he, he's obviously, you know, a lot of records for him on the line, actually, because he's got the, the major race going on. He's also one ahead in the Masters race, if that's any significance to him. Yeah, and w- which is another puzzling reason for me why he pulled out of Madrid, because I think that record is still on the table. Absolutely, yeah, because if Nadal wins Madrid and wins Rome, you know, then he's ahead in the then race. Then he'll retake so. the lead, yeah. So, so yeah, that's and and if Djokovic wins uh, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, he'll get to twenty majors as well. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean, uh, as we go forward, every major just feels bigger and bigger. Absolutely, and and I think it's it'll be nice. Um, we won't have Djokovic unfortunately, but I think in Madrid, we'll have the return of Dominic Team. That will be exciting. Yes, be, I'm very excited for that. And Medvedev will be back too. And <laughs> you know, Medvedev last year, Madrid round one, Rome round one, you know, Roland Garros round yeah, one, French so. Open round one. So. He he can only get better, right? Exactly. Yeah, there is quite literally uh, no way he can do worse, <laughs> except by not playing, I guess. Um, right. So so yeah, it should be interesting. It's it's interesting to think uh, that Medvedev and Team played this really great match at the ATP Finals last year, and if they were to play on clay, I think Team would just roll over him. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how Team looks and whether he can get that mojo back going before the. Uh, before the French Open, because and hopefully his knee feels good and he's ready to compete. Yeah, I I really hope it does. The clay season is so much more exciting on the ATP side with him around. He he has nice rivalries with Nadal and Djokovic. They've played some fantastic matches, and Tsitsipas has done a very good job of sort of filling his shoes for the moment. But if we had team back on top of that, I think uh, it'd be a great ensemble for some amazing matches. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap this up really quickly, I also uh, just recently got a tweet from somebody. Uh, from on my timeline, which is from the WTA Insider, which is that the main draw for the Madrid Open uh, on the women's side is out, and there's some really good first rounds. Uh, oh, that's on right. The, on, on the WTA, so so let me know what you think of these. Uh, we've got Ash Barty against Shelby Rogers. It's quite good for a first round. Yeah. We've got uh, Petra Kvitova against Buzkova. That could be interesting. And then we've mm-hmm. got you know Garbina Muguruza against Sloane Stephens. That's that's quite oh, good. Oh my gosh, popcorn for the wow. first round, and then. How about this one, Owen? You'll you'll really like this one. Simona Halep sure. against Sarah Cerevis Tomo. Oh, okay. Th- those last two, I'm <laughs> marking those. That I cannot wait for those. I um, just uh, just a question. Do you think there might be some good rallies in a Halep Cerevis Tomo? I I feel like there might be some long rallies in that one. Oh no, that's totally going to be like first strike tennis, right? Ah, no. uh, yeah, yeah. You're right. Of course. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but, for, yeah, in all seriousness, I mean, I'm expecting a tussle in that one, like three sets. Ah, uh, yes, me too. I am, um, as you all probably know, I am a recent uh, Sarah Cerebus Tormo fan. I love to watch her play. Um, she, lack of, um, lack of firepower, but she defends so well. She uses her endurance as a weapon and just makes every match a grind, and I just think that's so fun to watch. So really looking forward to this. Yeah, great match. And then you've got, you know, Carolina Pushkova against Coco Goff. Wow, that's quite good wow. too. <laughs> this is another good one. Oh my god. This, this WTA draw, I tell you. And then you've got, you know, Jennifer Brady against Venus Williams. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> and then last but not least, Maria yeah. Sakari against Amanda Anisimova. My goodness. These are like how are all of these possible? <laughs> this is pretty stacked. Like it's Th- this is absolutely stacked, yeah. I mean so many of those are sound like they could be great matches. Um so many big names too. 
Exactly. Yeah, this is this is going to be a good tournament. I can feel it. Yeah, and I mean, there's no Serena in this draw, but still, look at these popcorn matches. It's yeah, yeah. it just keeps on delivering every week. So, yeah, looking forward to Madrid. Looking forward to seeing how because we've got a long road ahead now because we've got you know Madrid, Rome back-to-back weeks, and then Roger Federer comes back in Geneva. Djokovic yep. is playing Belgrade the next week. Obviously, there's a couple, yeah. there'll be some 250 WTA events as well, and then you've got Roland Garros. Then Roland Garros, yeah. For two this, weeks, yeah. Th- this part of the calendar with uh, how, how quick the turnaround is between tournaments is so exciting as a fan, because it feels like uh, Barcelona and Belgrade and Stuttgart just ended, and now, like, I think uh, Madrid for the WTA starts day after tomorrow, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and then I think two or three days after that ATP starts. So Correct. yeah, tennis all the time. It's great. Yeah, it feels like you just can't catch a break. And and you know, I mean, there's two fifties going on this week, but I but uh, you know, seriously, you got to gear up for these ones because yeah, because then you've got th- th- there is a such thing as a burnout for a fan, unfortunately. <laughs> there is, there is, yeah. And then you've got you know Halle, and then you got Wimbledon immediately two weeks after. So yeah, yeah. we're we're gonna. We've got a lot, and we're going to definitely be doing more podcasts. We're definitely going to, you know, so keep it up. Uh, keep up the ratings on Apple Podcasts for our listeners. Uh, you know, always continue to message us, DM us. Our DMs are always open. Uh, follow us at tennis at tennis and bagels. You can follow Andre, who's not here, at Rollenberg Andre. Uh, and um, yeah, and we can follow you at Tennis Nation. I know Owen, you've uh, come up with a nice uh, match report and summary of the 2012 Australian Open final, which is quite a good read, I think. Oh, th- thank you for the shout out. Yeah, I um, I spent a long time on that one. It was a long article for a long match. Yeah, so and b- one of the best finals of all time. So definitely check that out on Owen's Twitter and check it out at the Racket. Um, and you can follow me. I'm going to be posting a lot of stats and going to keep on, you know, providing as many stats and figures as I possibly can, along with some analysis. So that will be fun. And then we'll continue to do more podcast episodes. So. Take care, everyone. Enjoy the tennis. This has been a blast, and we'll see you all soon. Yeah, fun as always, and looking forward to talking on Twitter, doing more episodes. Yeah, full steam ahead. Full steam ahead, yeah. All right, thank you. Thank you so much, Owen. Yeah. Of course. Thank you. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.